All right, you can open your Bibles to the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 22, starting in verse 41. Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 22, verse 41. Hear now the words of the living and the true God. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone else, did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Thus far as the reading of God's holy word, let's pray together as a church. Lord, what an amazing, amazing moment. Thank you for your word, the gift of your word, and thank you for this special promise before us. I pray, Lord, today as we have a a tight schedule in worship, I pray you help me, Lord, to communicate faithfully. I pray, Lord, you'd use your word to change our minds, to transform us, Lord, to empower us, to bless us, to encourage us for the future. I pray, Lord, that you would cause me to decrease, Christ to increase. Let everyone forget me and remember you. And I pray that you would, by your Spirit, change us, transform us, open your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is awesome, powerful moment before us. Psalm 110.1. Do you know about that passage? That's right. Do you know about it? If you're at Apologia Church for any length of time, you've heard it from us before, right? Psalm 110.1. Why is it so significant? Well, here now it's quoted from the Lord Jesus himself in this epic moment where he enters into Jerusalem and now you have this intense conflict brewing. You have people teaming up now against Jesus that really are not bedfellows, Pharisees and Herodians coming together now to try to flatter Jesus and try to trip him up. You have this difficult moment in the ministry of Jesus where Jesus is now about to be crucified and raised from the dead as promised, but now you have this this quotation from Psalm 110.1. Do you know about it? It's the most referenced Old Testament passage in the New Testament. The most directly quoted, alluded to, it is referenced over and over and over and over again, pointed to, rephrased, quoted directly. It's really God's apparently favorite Bible verse. I guess you can say that in some way. And it's interesting because the Old Testament, we see so much of the Old Testament in the New Testament, right? In particular, Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew, is that gospel that quotes so much from the Old Testament. I mean, it starts off with all the references and the genealogies to Jesus' history, of course, attaching to David. And you have immediate chapter 2 quotations from the Old Testament. And so this isn't, you know, unusual for the gospel according to Matthew in terms of an Old Testament reference. But it is interesting, here you have this quoted directly by the Lord Jesus, and it's in a really important moment where they've been challenging Jesus, and now he asks a question of his own. And it happens to be Psalm 110.1, that 
passage that's most often quoted from or alluded to in the New Testament from the Old Testament. So, of course, we're being playful like that with that when we say this is God's favorite Bible passage just because it's quoted so often. Psalm 110.1, The Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, just in terms of context, if you're new to this with us, we just last week talked about the great commandments. This is the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees in verse 34, and they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him, and that's where they're asking Jesus, greatest commandment, what do you think? And Jesus, of course, quotes from the Old Testament. Again, quoting from the Old Testament, from the law of God, love God and love neighbor right? We've got that passage, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. And then he quotes from Leviticus, law of God, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. And Jesus says, all the law and the prophets hang on these. A big moment. They liked that Jesus answered that way. The Pharisees liked that answer. But don't think, don't forget about the context of this moment. We just had Pharisees and Herodians plotting together against Jesus. Now, they liked his answer there. Fantastic. Good. Jesus seems to be a conservative. He's with us, right? It's a powerful moment. They just were plotting together with the Herodians to trip Jesus up, engaging in flattery, sinful flattery. There's more here. Jesus, of course, told his disciples they're going to Jerusalem. They're going to kill him, and he'll rise again. Comes into Jerusalem on The donkey comes in, everyone's saying, Hosanna, the son of David. Here's the son of David. There's that reference, son of David. The Messiah is David's son. He comes through David's lineage. Matthew already told us that, Matthew chapter 1. That's the lineage there. We're going back to David. This isn't detached. This isn't a novelty. Of course, this is the Messiah's story. But Jesus, of course, comes in. We have the temple turning that over now. There's that second examination that the priest had to do of the temple now and of course he finds the disease there and the promise was that things going to be taken apart stone off of stone so we're starting to see the symbolism of the old testament coming in now with jesus as the true high priest now fulfilling the law of god looking for disease and he's finding it there we have that epic moment of the meek and mild jesus in the temple right god is love bro He just loves you so much. Like he's fine with everything. Now Jesus comes in and finds sin and evil. And you have, of course, that moment where Jesus is turning things over in the temple. And then, of course, Jesus has the moment with the fig tree symbolizing Israel finding leaves but no fruit and Jesus cursing the fig tree. This is starting to build up now. It's starting to get very serious. You're seeing that Jesus is actually on mission And he's doing what you expect the priest to do. He's doing what you expect the son of David ultimately to do. He's like how you would imagine. But now you have, of course, them challenging his authority right here. They're challenging authority. By what authority are you doing this? And Jesus in his perfect wisdom goes right to their foundations and exposes them. But now here's that moment of the parables. Jesus tells three parables, right? You have the parable there of the um, two sons, the parable of the tenants, and you have the parable of the wedding feast. Now they can see in these parables, he's talking about them. This is you. Your life is at stake. This is your walk with God that is twisted and crooked right now. Jesus is telling his parables, and I love how it says it. Uh, it says, uh, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Uh, yeah, 
Absolutely. Jesus has these parables now directed against them. They see it, and they're actually quite violent. The wedding feast parable is serious business. The king sends his armies and destroys their city. That's what's coming. Get ready for it. That's what's happening now. The wedding feast, the invitations go out. People who are invited aren't coming now. And what happens? Your city gets burned down. That's a parable about you. Now, of course, these parables come out. Jesus is creating all this conflict in Jerusalem, temple turning over, fig trees, confronting them with parables. And then you have their questions, plotting against Jesus, Pharisees and Herodians, hanging out, bedfellows. And then, of course, after these questions, you have one with the Pharisees, and they're quite happy and satisfied. Jesus silenced the Sadducees, so he must be on our team. Maybe he's on our team. And so Jesus answers them as you'd expect the true Messiah to answer. But now Jesus has one. One of his own. Here's his question. Now this is a glorious moment because this is... We'll get to it. You'll see Jesus really explaining to us the Father. Explaining more to us. And here is... The question about sonship. The question about sonship. While the Pharisees, verse 41, were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Messiah, the Christ? Whose, whose son is he? He said to him, well, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord? saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So here is, of course, now inspired revelation that tells us this is David. David did this. David said this. This is David's revelation. And notice he says, David, in the spirit, there is the source of revelation from God. David in the Spirit. The Spirit of God is giving this revelation. This information didn't come from man. This is God's Word. It's like Paul says that we all know here at Apologia Church. All Scripture is theonoustos. It's breathed out by God. This revelation isn't from man. It doesn't find its origin in man. This is from the very Spirit of God. These are God's words in history. God condescending, right? David in the Spirit calls Him Lord. David's son? And yet David is calling him master, but it's David's son? How exactly does that work? There's a, oh, the Messiah is coming, and he's from David. It's David's son. And then Jesus points out something that was there the whole time. It was already there the whole time. They've been reading it the whole time. This was nothing new. It's like, and I believe... Dr. White, you're the one that said this. It's, it's, I don't even know where you stop and I start sometimes. But um, it's like you're in a room, a dimly lit room, right? You ever been in one of those? Dimly lit room. It's not completely dark, but yet the lights aren't on, right? You can see the shapes and you can see what's surrounding. You can see things. You might trip sometimes. It's not, you know, well lit. But you can see sort of stuff that's there, right? It's a dark room maybe and your eyes start to adjust. You can see the fuzzy things. They're there, but when you turn the lights on, when you turn those lights on in the room, you're not revealing anything that is new. 
It was there the whole time, and you saw outlines of it. You could see the fuzzy. You knew it was there, but now the lights have come on. Now you see it with clarity. Now you can see the colors. Now you can see the hinges. Now you can see all the details there. It's not as though when the lights come on, now something new is in the room. Now you can see with clarity. And that is Jesus in this moment quoting from Psalm 110.1 with these people who had these Scriptures. They know the Word of God. They're anticipating Messiah. And here He is right in front of them turning the lights on. Not reinterpreting anything. Not changing the nature of things. He just flips the light switch. Let me show you what was there the whole time. Do you see it now? How's your theology work with this about the Messiah? That's what's happening in front of us. It's a question about sonship. And when he asks, well, whose son is the Messiah? Whose son? And they're like, well, what do we know about the Messiah? He comes from David. David's lineage. That's David's son. We're all anticipating. It's all the way back to Abraham. It goes all the way back to Abraham and Sarah in this one who's coming. All the nations are going to be blessed. You're going to have descendants as numerous as the stars. It's like the sand on the seashore. It's all coming from there. And they see that promise picking up and picking up and picking up. And they're waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting. And they got this glorious promise here in Psalm 110.1. They're just waiting and waiting. And they go, oh, that's, that's David's son. He has to come from King David, our hero, King David. Now, of course, that's how Jesus, he's referred to son of David throughout the gospel according to Matthew. Jesus isn't denying that the Messiah is the son of David and from David, but he's actually flipping the lights on and showing them something more about Mashiach, about the Messiah. He's called son of David in the gospel according to Matthew in Matthew 9, 27, in 12, 23. 15, 22, 20, verses 30 through 31. And then right here, I want you to move back just one page to 21, just to see how this is fleshed out with the people of Israel as Jesus comes in and they're yelling, Hosanna, son of David. Here it is, 21, in verse 9. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And then again at 21 and 15. There it is again. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying, and Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths, mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. Jesus isn't condemning the title of Son of David, and it's all throughout the Gospel according to Matthew. Now, of course, you have even in the Synoptic Gospels. What does Synoptic mean? Seeing together. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you actually have this account throughout the synoptics. Now, the synoptics don't always do that. Sometimes you get more information, sometimes a little less. Sometimes you get more uh, Gentile language than you would have Jewish language in Matthew. But the synoptics have this same story throughout. They have this also genealogy of Jesus. You have the genealogy of Jesus given in Matthew and where? Who knows? Luke. Matthew and Luke. 
right? We talked about that when we opened up the genealogies in Matthew. Actually, the really powerful thing that you have those two different genealogies in Matthew and Luke. It was our contention that one is the royal line through Joseph, his adoptive father, and one is the uh, literal line through his mother Mary. But in both those genealogies, same story. David's in there. No question. Son of David is true. Physically, by descent, yes, it's true. Son of David. However, there's something more that Jesus is already telling. He's already saying it. The lights are starting to come on and there's more information now, more revelation from God that's coming in that actually exposes the reality of what's right in front of them and what's been there the entire time. It's a powerful, powerful thing. So we just saw Jesus' quotation there of Son of David. And it's interesting because He asked the question to probe them. He says, How is it then, if it's David's son, that David in the Spirit calls Him Lord? How is David in the Spirit, pre-Christ, calling Messiah, the Son of David, Lord, Master, Him? How? If it's just David's son. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Remember where we are. This is Jesus in the midst of conflict now. They're trying to trip him up. He's telling parables against them, against them, cursing fig trees, turning things over in the temple. But there's a parable where Jesus is already revealing this. And it's the parable that we went over, the parable of the tenants. I want to point you to that parable. It was in 21 verse 20, or sorry, 33. Remember the parable? We won't do it all again today. But you remember the parable? In the parable, there's the master of a house who planted a vineyard. A master of the house who planted a vineyard. And what happens? Well, when it's time to start collecting, he starts sending people to collect. And what happens? Beating one and stoning another. And so what does the master say? He says, well, I'll send my son. Surely they're going to respect my son. And what do they do when the son of the owner comes now to the vineyard? They're like, look, this is the heir. Yes! Let's kill him and let's take his inheritance. Now, of course, we see here in that parable itself, Jesus tells them judgment is coming. He says in verse 43, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And they know He's talking about them. But notice what Jesus has already begun doing. He's beginning to fill in their gaps because He's already telling the story, announcing whose son He is. Master of the vineyard. He sends His Son. Who's the master of the vineyard in the parable? It's obvious. It's God. So Jesus is not now holding back. He's telling them, and He's telling them in these parables, but the parables are really about them. But it's not like He's withholding the information. He's telling them the whole time His identity. He's the Son of the owner of the vineyard. He's the Son. And you guys are going to cast out the Son and God's going to take the kingdom away from you and give it to somebody else over here that will produce its fruit. Who is Jesus? He's the Son of God. Not merely the physical Son of David down through His history. And Jesus begins to open this up. 
Now, just a quick thing in terms of comparison, comparing the synoptics. If you look at Matthew 22, 41 through 46, you'll see that account, but you'll also see it in Mark. So just keep a finger there and move over to Mark, the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 12. The same account is there, but it's actually interesting because Mark tells a story just a little bit differently than Matthew. Matthew is emphasizing something that he is for a reason in terms of Jesus' direction of the question. But Mark tells a story a little bit different in terms of scope. And in Mark 12.35, here's how it goes for Mark. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Now listen to the response. And the great throng, as the ESV puts it, heard him gladly. Mark is giving you more details about the response of the crowds as this takes place. And you can see the other accounts in Luke 20, verse 41. Now, let's go back to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, 41 through 46. Now, notice this. A couple things to point out here. When Jesus says, he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Notice this. If you look back at that text, you'll see that this is Yahweh speaking to David's master. Now, everyone, come with me now. This is very, very important in terms of the identity of Jesus. And when we talk about the Trinity, you're seeing the triune nature of God and the three distinct, co-equal, co-eternal persons from Old Testament to New Testament. And even in moments like this, epic moments like this, here you have Yahweh speaking to David's master. The Lord said to my Lord... Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So what do you have there? Here's an instance in terms of the identity of the Messiah, of the distinction in persons. The distinction in persons. That's going to be important in terms of contrary to modalism, the idea of one God, one person. The Bible teaches that there is only one God. Amen? Yes? Jesus just affirmed it right before this. When they ask what's the greatest commandment in the law, or when he's asked what the greatest commandment is in the law, Jesus quotes from the Shema. Let's do it together again so we all memorize this. Ready? Shema, Yisrael, Yahweh, Eloheinu, Yahweh, Echad. There you go. So, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus has already affirmed there's only one God. And yet... Here you have the Lord saying to David's master, sit at my right hand. Here you have the Father speaking to the Son against the idea that there is only one God, one person. Yes, there are views like modalism that teach that God is one being of God and one person 
who exists in modes or puts on different masks. Sometimes he has the mask of the Father on, then take that mask off, and now there's the mask of the Son. And then that mask comes off, and then there's the mask of the Holy Spirit. One God, one person. Question, how is that possible when you have Yahweh speaking to Jesus, talking to Him? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So that's an important point, number one. Number two, notice that as Jesus tells this, the Messiah is greater than David. Greater than David. Now, King David is a giant. He's also a giant failure, right? But he's a spiritual giant. He is an adulterer. He's, he's, he's tangled up in murder and... He's a man after God's own heart. Man, there is hope for all of us. Amen? Yeah, he's a hero, a biblical hero. He's King David. Think about it. When David was involved in that sin, you think people were outside shouting like, I'm friends with David. Like, I'm, I'm good with David. Like, I'm hanging out with David. It'd be like, mm-mm. Like, time, time heals a lot of wounds, right? Because now when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, they're like, Hosanna, that's the son of David. But you'll notice that in this psalm, Psalm 110.1, the Messiah is greater than David. He is a servant of this master. David is a servant. The Messiah is the master. The Lord said unto my Lord, my master. But this is David saying it. King David. So it's interesting. Now, number three, third point. If he was merely a created being from David's physical lineage, then he can't be greater than David. Now, follow me on that, guys. Think about a timeline of history. David wrote this in the Spirit long before Jesus came. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so something to think about here is if... This Lord of David is merely a created being, then from David's physical lineage, then he can't be greater than David. He came from David. But Jesus is teaching something here about a psalm that they know. You've had this all along. You've had it all along. How is he David's son if he's greater than David? How is he David's son if he's the master of David? Here's the answer. He is greater because he is God's eternal son who pre-existed David. He is David's master. So here's an example of what we have in the Old Testament and New Testament verses that testify to the pre-existence of Christ. Christ is co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. Jesus is not a created being. Jesus, of course, stepped into history at a point in time, took on flesh, and there, there is the humanity of Jesus. Yes, there's David's son, but that's not all Jesus is, is simply Messiah and David's son. Jesus is the son of God. He's the eternal son of God who has always existed alongside the Father. There has never been a time where Jesus did not exist in the bosom of the Father. Jesus is 
eternal God. And Jesus here now turns the lights on around Psalm 110.1. The lights come on. How's he David's son? If David is calling him master. And what's the father doing talking to him? Now here's um, what's important to note about this in terms of we need to now expand this. Because now watch, the lights are coming on around Psalm 110.1 for those early Jews. Here's the lights coming on. Again, not now dropping something new into the story, but simply putting light on what was already there. Now they can see around it. They see its shapes. They see the details. They see the colors. Because now the Son of God is revealing what was there all along. That is a fantastic, te- there's a fantastic text that shows exactly this. I want you to see it. It's in John chapter 1. John chapter 1. This is one of my very favorite parts of Scripture. John chapter 1. This so beautifully describes what we're talking about when we talk about the pre-existence of Christ and what Christ is doing by revealing the Father to us. So go there in your Bibles. John chapter 1. This is, of course, a famous section. You know this probably by heart, right? In the beginning was the Word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Who? The Word. Who's the Word here? Jesus. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything thing made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Wow. In the beginning, every Jew goes, I I can finish that. I got it. I got it. Right? You're a Jew. You've been raised now, right? Synagogue. You've been to Jewish Awanus your whole life, right? You go to synagogue every Saturday, right? You're hang. This is your life. And you've heard mom and dad since you were itty bitty saying in the beginning. And everyone goes, I got it. Let me finish the verse. God created the heavens and the earth. Now here's John, a Jewish follower of Jesus, saying, in the beginning, and every Jew goes, ooh, my turn, let me finish the verse. I got it memorized. And he says, was the Word. The Word was already there. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. This is an incredible section of Scripture. The text is in Archaean Halagos. As far back as you want to go with no reference point to stopping, the Word was already there. He was already there. Jesus has existed from all eternity. And it says that He was prostomtheon, toward the Father, in face-to-face intimate relationship with the Father. He always existed with the Father. And He was God. The divinity of Messiah always existing with the Father in intimate relationship and fellowship from all eternity. And He is God. He created everything in existence and without Him, nothing came into being that's come into being. But John doesn't stop there. He gives more. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone 
who was coming into the world, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. That's who Jesus is. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And here it is. Yes, yes, here it is. And the word became what? Flesh. And dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. There it is again. The pre-existence of Christ. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. That's interesting. No one has ever seen God at any time. What about in the Old Testament where God appears? The angel of the Lord shows up to Abraham. The angel of the Lord shows up at Moriah where Abraham's offering Isaac as a sacrifice. Where, what about Jacob wrestling with God? What about those angel of the Lord appearances? What do you mean no one's ever seen God at any time? Oh, now we're understanding. Nobody's ever seen the Father at any time, but we have Jesus, the Christ who has always existed alongside the Father. But watch this wording here. It is something fascinating. Where it says here, no one has ever seen God, verse 18, the only God who is at the Father's side. The word there is monogonese theos. The unique and one-of-a-kind God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. John is screaming to us about the divinity of Jesus and the pre-incarnate Christ. He has always existed in intimate fellowship with the Father. He is God. He made you. He made your children. He made everything in existence. He sustains this whole universe. And that God who made everything there is, that God took on flesh. Took on flesh and He walked among us. And He revealed the Father to us. That's what's happening in Matthew 22. Here is Jesus now, the only God, the unique and one-of-a-kind God who is in the bosom of the Father. Here He is explaining God to us. Here He is explaining the revelation of God to us. Here is Jesus turning the lights on in the room and giving us the details. John chapter 1 is powerful. More though, John chapter 1, of course, verse 1 is a passage that teaches the pre-existence of Christ. You can also look at the famous passage, John chapter 8. It's one of my very favorite. It's one of the very first verses I used in a fight. It is. Because when I first heard the gospel, I was in John. I didn't, I wasn't raised in church. I wasn't raised in Sunday school. I knew very little about the Bible. The first time I said Jesus is God, uh, was to my pastor, and I said it probing him to see if it was true. Because I was sure that's what I was seeing in John. 
But I said it and I was like, yeah, and then I said Jesus is God. And he was like, yes, and? I was like, okay, good, that's true. Okay, all right. I thought that's what John was saying. But in John chapter 8, it's a famous scene where Jesus tells them, let's look in verse 56, 856. Jesus says to the Jews of his day, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, ego me. He quotes from the Septuagint, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Why are they going to throw stones at Jesus? Why? Because he just took the divine name of God for himself. I am the eternal God. I am. Jesus is telling them who he is and they pick up stones to kill him. It's not the only time he did it. In John chapter 10, he says, I and the Father are one. And they pick up stones to kill him again. And he says, many good works have I shown you from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? And they said, for thy good works we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and that you being a man make yourself God. Jesus was not being unclear. He was taking the divine name of God and using it for himself. He was taking divine prerogatives and using them himself. Like, for example, your sins are forgiven you. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Exactly! That's who this is. God becoming a man. The Word becoming flesh who always existed. You have John chapter 12. You don't need to go here now, but go read it later. In John chapter 12, you have another example of the identity of the Messiah, the pre-incarnate Christ. You know the famous scene, right? We sing it in church. You can do it. Holy, holy, holy. See, there you go. That's old school. Nowadays, it would be with lights and fog and like guitars and right, like, and it's a little higher pitched. Um, but you know the holy, holy, holy scene, right? What's that from? Isaiah chapter 6. It's a famous scene in the history of Scripture. It's a scene where Isaiah catches a glimpse now of this heavenly scene, and you have Yahweh. The eternal God. And the angels are saying, holy, holy, holy. Now, I won't belabor this, but you know the history there. There's no exclamation points in Hebrew, right? To stress like dot, 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 right? You want to say something? Say it once. You mean it. You want to stress it? You want to shout it? Say it again. Stack it. Holy, holy. But now the angels here are saying, holy, holy. Holy, holy. This is screaming that truth. This is the throne room scene with Yahweh and the angels and holy, holy, holy. This is where Isaiah gets a glimpse of this and he now is completely torn up over it. So he does what? He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm coming apart at the seams. This is him unraveling when he gets a glimpse of Yahweh in John chapter 12. It's announced that when Isaiah saw the throne room scene with Yahweh and the holy, 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 and Isaiah is torn to pieces, in that moment, it was Jesus that Isaiah saw. Did you catch that? That glorious moment that tore Isaiah up, he saw Jesus. 
That's what John 12 says. John chapter 17, another example of Christ and His pre-existence, His superiority. In John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer of our Savior. I'm going to read through this so you can hear it with your and see it with your own eyes. When Jesus had spoken these words, verse 1, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You, since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom You have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, here it is, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. People will often ask when they misunderstand the doctrine of the Trinity, say in Mesa, we're in Mesa now, talk to a lot of Mormons, and they'll say, wait, Jesus is God? So what's Jesus doing what is he throwing his voice? Right? In the baptism, is he throwing his voice where the Father speaking from heaven? Is that Jesus the ventriloquist? Like we're throwing our voice now? Or how does that work out? Well, here's an amazing moment where throughout Scripture you have the Father speaking to the Son. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And here's the moment where Jesus speaks to the Father. Father, now glorify me with the glory that I shared with you before the world was. No problems here throughout Scripture. From old to new, you've got the Father speaking to the Son, the Son speaking to the Father. They are two distinct, eternal persons. One God. One God by nature. So again, John chapter 17 is another moment where Jesus talks about His preexistence. Now, just to point you to this, for today. Go check these out later. Go study these passages. You know some of these already, and this isn't exhaustive, but just a quick touch on this. In terms of when Jesus is saying this now, he's flipping the lights on over a passage that they already had. He's not changing its meaning. He's illuminating that passage and showing them the identity of the Messiah in a way that they had not understood yet. The Lord said unto my Lord, David said that in the Spirit, that Yahweh said to my master, David's master, sit at my right hand. Here you have this illumination going on, but watch, this was already there all along. You see, watch this. This is a benefit of us now today as Christians with the revelation of God today in the 21st century. We have the revelation contained together. So when we walk into the Old Testament as Christians now with the revelation of Jesus Christ, now we walk into the Old Testament and we go, look, it was there all along. It was right there. How did they not see it all along? God showing up in Moriah. God showing up with Abraham. The Father speaking to the Son in the Old Testament. And yet there's only one God. How did they not see it? They didn't have the full and final revelation of God that you and I have in Jesus Christ. That is something to praise God for. Amen? We have a gift today to have this revelation, to have this understanding, this illumination of the Word of God. For example, in Genesis chapter 18, verse 1, you know the famous scene. Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have a child. <laughs> That's what I imagine she sounded like. Right? Something to that effect. 
Or she was old, wasn't she? It was like, <laughs> right. So it was something like that. But we know the scene, right? Who's showing up? It's God. Hmm. But then you have Genesis 22, the famous scene of the offering of Isaac. And that scene is amazing. Abraham, go to this place, three-mile journey, takes his son, his only son, the son of his love. I love that God is just packing into Genesis 22 those words, his only son, the son that he loves. Here's his son, Isaac with him. He goes to this place, sees it in a distance. He says to the guys with him, me and the boy are going to go over there, worship, and we will return with you. He knew he was coming back with Isaac. He believed God could raise the dead. He was going because God said go. So he went and he lays the, son, his, the, the wood for the offering on the son of his love. His only son is carrying the wood to the place of the sacrifice. And they get to the place of the sacrifice. Well, there's the fire and there's the wood. Where's the lamb? God will provide for himself the lamb, my son. And then his son goes up on that altar and right as he's about to bring that knife up, it says the angel of the Lord speaks. And when the angel of the Lord speaks, we got to stop thinking about like just angels like flying around, just some random creature. It's the messenger of the Lord. The messenger of Yahweh shows up and he says, don't harm him. Now I see you fear God. Watch. For you would have not withheld your only son from me. From you? This is a sacrifice to Yahweh. From you? It's there the whole time. And you go, why didn't the Jews see it? Because God didn't reveal Christ yet in the way that we have in the New Testament. You have the offering of Isaac. Then you have, of course, the famous scene my son Stella was tripping out over recently when they're going through the Old Testament. Jacob wrestling with God. Genesis 32, 30. Now that's a story to tell. Jacob wrestling with God. It's there the whole time. It's already in that text. It's there. Again, it's not as though when Jesus comes, we're dropping now all of this unusual information like novelties down. Now you get the full and final revelation of God. The full explanation. Notice also that Jesus had just affirmed there's only one God in Matthew 22, 37. There's only one God. So watch, this gets us to an important point. The Bible teaches there is only one God. How many gods? One God. Isaiah 43.10, the Bible says, Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. Isaiah 44.6 and 44.8 teach clearly, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. And then God asks a rhetorical question there. He says, is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other God. I know not one. God says in Deuteronomy chapter 4, 35 and 39, He is God alone in the heavens above and on the earth below. There is no other. There is only one God. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, From eternity into eternity, you are God. There is only one God eternal God. The Bible teaches that plainly. But it's interesting because you have through the Old and New Testaments, God talking to God. The Father speaking to the Son. In the New Testament, Jesus speaking to the Father. The Father speaking from heaven. The Holy Spirit telling Paul where to go. 
speaking to Paul. So you have a distinction in persons. How are we to hold all this together? Well, there's a great quote Dr. White has used. If you haven't gotten his book yet, The Forgotten Trinity, you need that on your shelf. It's, I think, one of the best books on the subject. It's not as large as many of those books can be. I think it's probably one of the most helpful books on this subject. Dr. White has a way of describing this that I memorized when I first read that book. Within the one being called God, there exists eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When we talk about God, we're talking about what? The nature of. What is that? So, for example, if God was in front of us right now, we could say, what is that? Like, for example, if I took Wade and brought him up here right now and I pointed at him and I said, hey, everybody, what's this? Now, it would seem kind of weird to refer to my friend like, what's that? Right? You'd be like, why are you, why are you saying what? There's a proper way to put that. What is that? By nature. What is it? Human. That's a human being by nature. Now, if you go to my house, we have a little dog, two dogs running around. I could go, what's that? And what would we all say? That's a dog. I also have a bird in a cage. It's not a dog. It's not a human. If I said, what's that? You would say, a bird, right? And we could do this all day long, walking around this world and pointing to things saying, what's that? That's a tree by nature. That's its being. It's a tree. What's that? Oh, that's a blade of grass. That's grass. What's that? A human being. But if I point at Wade and I say, who is that? What am I talking about now? Not his nature, not his being. I'm talking about his person. Who is that? And you would go, that sounds more like it. That's Wade, you weirdo. (laughs) You get the difference between what something is and who that someone or something is. And when we talk about the triune nature of God, we say, what? God, by nature, only one God. But when I point to the God of the Bible and I say, who? The Bible tells us from Genesis to Revelation, there is the Father, there is the Son, there is the Holy Spirit, three eternal, co-equal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in this moment, you see Jesus illuminating even a passage like Psalm 110.1 with this Trinitarian theology. Of course, you have, again, people asking questions like, how is Jesus talking to Himself? How is Jesus talking to Himself? Well, He's not. He's talking to the Father. How is the Father talking to Himself? He's not. He's talking to the Son, the eternal Son. If Jesus is God, why does He call the Father God? Well, the question to ask is, how would the perfect man refer to God? Would He be an atheist? Our perfect representative, if there was a perfect humanity, a perfect obedient human, a perfect representative for us, how would that perfect representative refer to the Father? We better refer to Him as God. He better be obedient as a perfect man. Amen? Otherwise, we're all toast, right? Yes. 
If you didn't say amen, you don't know yourself yet. But it's also not a problem that Jesus refers to the Father as God because the Father refers to Jesus as God and tells all the angels to worship Him. Where's that at? Who knows? Hebrews chapter 1. Someone says, what's Jesus doing calling the Father God if He's God? Well, of course, that's not a problem because the Father also calls Jesus God and tells all the angels to worship Him. This is what the Bible teaches us about the nature of God, the triune nature of God. Jesus' answer explains His position and His existence. So when Jesus now explains to them Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 and onward, when He explains to them His identity, He is showing that He is not merely the Son of David. He is David's Master. He is not merely the Son of David. He is also the Son of God, the preexistent Son of God, the eternal Son of God. Jesus now flipped the lights on around Psalm 110.1. Now, I'd love to spend so much time on this, but I want to just highlight this important point. Um, I mentioned to you that Psalm 110.1 is God's favorite Bible verse because of how often it is quoted in the New Testament. I'm going to do this rather quickly for today. We do have baptisms for today. I'd love to spend a long time on this, but I just want to point you to a few things. It's here in Matthew 22:44. Psalm 110:1 is quoted by Jesus. You also have a hinting at this in Matthew 26:64. This is where Jesus says, "You've said it yourself." Jesus answered, "But I say to all of you from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Here is Jesus now actually combining Daniel 7, 13 through 14 and this Psalm 110.1, David's master sitting at the right hand of God. You have it quoted and referenced in Mark 12, 36, Mark 14, 62. But you also have it in the famous scene in Acts chapter 2, verse 34. This is huge. You know Pentecost. You know the scene. Peter is preaching. Of course, that, that magnificent moment in the history of the world. But in Acts 2, 34, it's quoted, For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. You have, of course, in Hebrews 12, 12, 12.2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Notice that the writer of Hebrews is putting this now past tense. It's done. He is seated. He's at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, we could do this actually for a while because it's quoted from and alluded to throughout the New Testament. Again, I like to call it God's favorite Bible verse because it's what's mentioned over and over and over again. But I thought we should do this in a way where we actually ask the question, well, what about now? I see Jesus having this conversation with the Jews in his day. He corrects their understanding of that passage. He turns the lights on around it. He shows them who he truly is, the Son of God. Right? It's powerful. But now, post-cross, post-resurrection, how did the apostles refer to this passage? And I think we'll finish on this today 
the epic moments. 1 Corinthians 15, when the Apostle Paul refers to this very same passage, I want you all to see it. So go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll finish today here. Because that was during the earthly ministry of Jesus, but now in the 21st century, with all of this behind us now, how did the Apostle Paul view Psalm 110.1? Because if you heard that verse... It means a lot. Can I just highlight this for a moment? Can you, can you go here with me for just a second be honest? Do you sometimes read the Bible and you'll see something insanely glorious, so powerful, so majestic, that you read it and your human mind just lets it go right over Like, for example, those of us that have struggled with idolatry, to say drugs or alcohol. You see a passage like, in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures. What? Forever. That's where it's at. It's been there all along. So what are you and I chasing? Right? You see a passage like that. It's so glorious and so magnificent, but we are so small in our minds and our strength. You'll see something like that and then you'll go and you'll chase down the bootleg pleasure or the bootleg joy. Struggling with alcohol and drug addiction, right? And right there in front of you, this glorious reminder of where pleasure and joy is found, where it resides, where it is just limitless. It's right there. And what do we do? We go right to that text. We see the promise. We close our book. We forget. And we go and we chase down bootleg pleasure and bootleg joy as though it's found there. That's what I mean. Just goes right over us at times. And I just went into Psalm 110.1. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Do you know what that meant? The victory of the Messiah. The Messiah at the right hand of the Father putting the enemies of God under the Messiah's feet. That's victory. And oftentimes we read a passage like that it just goes right past us in terms of what does that say about the Messiah? Well, the Apostle Paul explains it. And I'm going to start right here in verse 1. Chapter 15. 1 Corinthians. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Here it is. What did Paul preach? Right here. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with with the Scriptures. And that He appeared to... Who's that? That's, that's Peter, right? If you didn't know. Then to the twelve. Then he, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, 
though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now we go, yes, let's go tell that message to the world. Let's tell everybody. But there's more. Paul explains. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. That needs to be understood today with all of these corrupt, perverse versions of the Christian faith today that talk about your best life now. If this is where our hope is, if this is where it's all residing, if this is where it's all at, if we only have this, if this is the focus of everything, then we are most to be pitied. Because there is going to be a resurrection. But here it is. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. So here is the Apostle Paul giving us the good news of what Christ has accomplished. And in this moment, he talks about the resurrection. But now what he does with Psalm 110.1 is he puts it as a present reality. He says, what about Jesus now? He must reign. Until what? His enemies are made a footstool for his feet. So the Apostle Paul, when he gives the timeline of history, he says... Jesus has been raised. Jesus is reigning. And what is Jesus reigning and doing now? He is putting all of his enemies under his feet as a footstool for his feet. And he says, when that takes place, when all of his enemies are brought under his feet, then the very last enemy is going to be what? Death. So it's all of God's enemies under this Messiah's feet. And then the final one is death. That is hope for the future. That's who you worship. That's your king. That's your God. That's your Messiah. He's more beautiful and more powerful than we could have ever imagined. The people of God in the first century thought they have a good picture, thought they had a good picture of who Messiah was. It's David's son and he's going to rule over the world, and he's going to bring the nations to God. That's what we've got. It was bigger, more beautiful than that. You were also going to get salvation, justification. You were going to get God himself 
Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, taking on flesh to come and save His people from their sins. This story is truly good news. It's the good news of God. It's the good news of the kingdom. And what I want to point to here is this passage from the Lord Jesus quoted to the Jews in His day says something about Jesus. Yes, He's David's Son, but not merely David's Son. He's also the Creator of David. The one who pre-existed David. He's the one that David yields to and bows to. And He is the one who is at the right hand of the Father putting every one of God's enemies under His feet in subjection to Him. And I want to say this for all of us who were in Christ today that ought to give us hope for the future when we face the kind of world and culture we do today that is so hostile to the truth of God. We worship and serve and love and are saved by the One who is at the right hand of the Father ruling over this world with all authority and all power, putting all things into subjection to Him. We should face the world with joy and confidence because our Savior is on His throne placing His enemies under His feet. We ought to face the world the same way David, King David, faced Goliath. Who's this uncircumcised Philistine? Right? Why? Because our God is on the throne. Notice that when Jesus ascends, He says, all authority, where? In heaven and on earth, has been given to Me. Therefore, go. Now you go get them. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and you teach them to obey Me. That's the call. That's the commission. And if you say, we are too weak, we have no power, we have no authority, we have no ability, the answer is yes and amen and amen. But you and I serve the God who's on His throne. This has been His plan all along. And the call now is those of us who are saved and filled by His Spirit, with His Spirit, we go and get the world. Go win it for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You'd bless, Lord, the words that went out today. Please use these words, Lord, not my words. The words, Your words, the words of God to shape and change our thinking as believers. Empower us, God, by Your Spirit. Allow us to fall more and more in love with Your Word and Your revelation. I pray, God, You'd use us as a church. Deliver us, Lord, from the schemes and the tools of the enemy. Draw us into more intimate fellowship and joy together. Guard us from the enemy. Guard us from our own sin. And please use us in this amazing story that You've already set forth into the world. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.